karma and insight are the two ways of actualizing the Buddha's teaching. There is nothing else. Now, when I first started explaining this particular discourse, it depended very much on the preliminary steps towards meditation. Morality, guarding the senses, mindfulness and clear comprehension, and contentment. Now, mindfulness leads to insight in several methods. It also leads to calm if it becomes concentration. So now that I have already explained the first three steps of calm, namely the first, second, and third jhana, I will go back to mindfulness and its insight method. It is essential to practice both. And the sensible way of doing this is that if the mind feels at ease and calm to practice calm meditation and then insight. Only the calm mind gains insight. The agitated, unconcentrated mind would get more agitated if it should gain any insight. However, the calm mind, which is the ideal way, first getting calm and then going into insight, the calm mind can accept a totally different worldview. However, we are not always blessed with a calm mind. So if we have a mind which, with which we sit down on the pillow, which is discursive and distracted, worried and fearful, anxious and angry, or whatever else it may be, that's the time to use insight method. And it is of the utmost importance, and I can't stress that enough, to know what one is doing, whether one is using calm or insight. If we don't know what we're doing, how are we ever going to do it properly? So, it's very simple to know what one is doing. If we use the breath and actually try to stay on it, we're trying to go towards calm. And that's where, when it becomes concentrated, the jhanas will result. Concentration, samasamadhi, means the jhanas. If we want to become aware of the impermanent of the breath because this is where the mind is going to that's insight when we are distracted and discursive and we label that's insight if we can actually stay on the breath that's calm but if we can't distinguish what we're doing we'll never know where to direct our mind and the Buddha's instructions are quite clear direct the mind where you want it to go this is what we have to learn eventually that we can direct our mind to where it wants to go that we are not beset 
by worries and fears and unhappiness and desires and cravings and rejections, but we direct the mind where we want it to go. That means gaining control of the mind. Now, often people are afraid to get into a concentrated state because they think they're losing control. Because what they're losing is the ego support. Nobody's got control over their mind that cannot direct the mind where they want it to go. Only a person that can do the jhanas at will has finally gained control over the mind. Everybody else, when they're not wanting to get perfectly concentrated, is afraid to lose control, is losing ego, ego support. That's what we call control. So, on this path, when the mind sits down and does not have a calm feeling about it, it is better to use insight first because insight will eventually produce calm to the measure that insight has arisen. The same way calm will produce insight to the measure that calm has arisen. The ideal way is first calm, then insight. We can't always do that, so we use insight method. Now with mindfulness on the body, we are actually faced with quite a number of different methods to gain insight. And we should use them all alternatively, now and then, as one's own discretion, and especially if one doesn't like one or the other option, then one should use it especially because it means that there is rejection and resistance. Mindfulness of the body has the most varied methods. Methods are always methods, but these are very effective and have been effective many times. So the first thing I was telling you about mindfulness of the body was to please use it outside of the meditation hall to watch movement. And I will repeat this once more, if you actually know that you're opening a door and nothing else and know that you're pulling it and then shutting it again, there's no worries, no fear, the whole world has disappeared. All you know is opening and shutting a door. And if you don't learn that, as the centerpiece of mindfulness, Meditation does not happen. It may be a lucky accident once in a while. And I hope there are many lucky accidents. But it isn't the real thing. Mindfulness has to happen outside of meditation. And only when you actually do it, once or twice, will you know what it means to be mindful. Being mindful means to know nothing other than what one is actually doing at that moment. And mindfulness of the body is particularly effective in this way. When one is walking down the steps, just knowing the steps. When one is sitting down, just knowing sitting down and nothing else. The world disappears. The world has no impact anymore. 
Obviously, a meditator doesn't want to be in the world, otherwise he'd be down at the beach or somewhere else. So, if we want to be in the world, we're not here. If we're here, mindfulness is the only thing that gets the mind on the right direction, on the right track, where it can then go unimpeded towards concentration. Now, that's one aspect of mindfulness of the body. And if you just do it once or twice, you will know immediately what it means that it is the one way for the purification of being. Because at the time of being mindful of what the body is doing, it is impossible to be negative. And if we are beset by fears or anger, by ill will or anxiety, or by desires or craving, what could be better than getting rid of it? It's only up to each person. Mindfulness of what the body is doing is the only thing that really does it. Now, obviously, one is forgetting, but not constantly. Constantly forgetting means not practicing. Once in a while forgetting and then pulling it back together, that's practice. Practice doesn't mean one is perfect. But practice can mean that one day one can become perfect. But the main thing is practicing, doing it right now. And as we do it, the world disappears around us. Totally unnecessary to have anything to do with it. doesn't matter what's happening out there. It's all happening now. What is in the world is either past or future. And past and future do not exist. This is the only thing that exists. Time is arbitrary. It's man-made. It doesn't have any absolute reality, reality to it. The absolute reality is that there is everything in the now. But in order to experience that, one's got to be mindful, being right there then. Second aspect of mindfulness are in are meditation methods which have to do with the body and I will explain them to you now and as I have explained to them practice them now as I said before practice them at the beginning of the meditation if the mind is discursive or practice them at the end of the meditation period when the mind has become very calm if the mind has become very calm and you practice it then, it will have a great impact because the calm mind sees things in a different light. It's like um, an unwavering view, whereas the mind which is not calm sees it, of course, in little um, wavelets, wave motions, which don't give a clear picture, but they give an inkling. And that inkling can help us to become calm. So one of the aspects of mindfulness of the body as a meditation method are the 32 parts of the body. Now, you don't have to learn them by heart, as we do in the monasteries. We learn them by heart in Pali and in English 
and chant them. It doesn't do any good anyway if one doesn't practice it. And what I would like to suggest to you, pretend you've got a zipper in front of your body, open the zipper up and take every piece that you have inside out. Now, everybody knows enough about the human body to take them out, even if you don't come up to 32 parts. But when you start at your head, you will start with the hair of the head, and that's how the 32 parts start. Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. And these are the first five that are given to everyone who ordains. Meditate on them. And when people ordain when they're young, they haven't got a clue what they're supposed to do with that. Anyway, you take, start with the hair of the head, and then take everything out that you can find. And if you can feel it, what it feels like, see it, what it looks like, and become aware of the empty spot that's left behind. Do of that as much as you can, whatever you can. And then put it all neatly out in front of you. And then get the bones and stack them nicely, like firewood. And then have a look. Where are you? And if you don't like doing it, make yourself do it. It means it's doubly important. Because it is to counteract our absurd infatuation with our body, and our absurd identification with our body. Both are totally absurd. We identify with bits and pieces, and we are infatuated with it. It's supposed to stay young, beautiful, healthy, attractive, of a certain color, and a certain the skin is supposed to look in a certain way. Well, watch the skin wrinkle as you take the insides out, and maybe that will get you, give you an idea what it's like. Take them all out nicely and neatly, put them all in front, and then have a look. Amongst all this, the liver and the kidneys and the bile and the blood and the um, intestines, is that me? And the mind will probably say, no, couldn't be me. Doesn't look nice enough. So then you put it all back inside nicely and neatly and zip it all up again. Naturally, it's you. Who else? So, what happened? Where did the me go when it was all in bits and pieces? And now it's all come back. There is me again. It's not only an antidote for discursive thinking. It's not only interesting. It gets one on the path towards insight. There's only one reason for meditating. And that's to see the absurd illusion of the ego under which everybody operates, with which everybody has constant problems, and which in the end turns out to be laughable. That's the only reason for meditating. Everything else is by the way. So this is a very useful way of having a look where this supposed me is sitting within all that. It has another very beneficial um, result, if one needs that, and some people do, certainly. It does counteract lust. And lust is very often a great burden. 
So it can counteract that. And if that is one's burden, remember not to take somebody else apart, always yourself. Not taking somebody else apart. Now while all this stuff is inside of us, it's us. Now nowadays we can get spare parts. While they're still in the bottle, standing on the shelf at the surgeon's place, it's not us. When it's just inside there, it's me. Why? Have a look. Find out. Obviously, it's not going to mean enlightenment if one finds out that that couldn't be me. Our me illusion is so deeply ingrained that doing this once or twice is only going to give us the benefit of the doubt. Well, allow yourself the benefit of the doubt, whether this is really you. If we don't get the benefit of the doubt out of our meditation practice, we have really done it in vain. We've really done it for nothing. So that's one way of using mindfulness of the body. It's called the 32 parts of the body. And as I said before, you don't have to know them all. It doesn't matter. Whatever you find in there, take it out. Look around whether you missed anything. And afterwards, when you put it back in, be sure you don't leave anything out. Now there's another way, and another very important way of using mindfulness of the body for inside meditation. And that's to relate the physical body to the four primary elements. The four primary elements Earth, water, fire, and air, or wind, same thing. Now these four primary elements exist in everything that has a physical manifestation. So obviously it exists in us. So how do we meditate with that? The earth element is very easy to notice. It's the solidity of our body touching the solidity of the pillow, earth element. Heavy, solid, touch sensations. And if we become a little bit concentrated on that, watching this touch sensation, the heaviness and the solidity of this body, we will notice that the same heaviness and solidity exists in the floor that we're sitting on and the pillow we're sitting on also earth element. And we can immediately infer from that that the earth out there has the same earth element and the trees have the same. And everything we've ever touched has earth element in it. And if we take it for granted that there is nothing that can be touched that doesn't have earth element because it's we don't have to go around trying to touch everything. It's obvious that everything has that. It will give us, in the first instance, a feeling of unity, a feeling of being part of a whole of creation. Feeling separate from it all is not only fearful, 
but it lends itself to greed and hate. Because as long as I'm separate, I dislike which that which is threatening my ego, and I desire that which seems to support my ego, my personal ego, my personal existence. But when we get an inkling, and all these are only inklings, of the fact that there is creation and it's no different from me, myself, then some of this threat which creates fear and hate and some of this va which looks for support vanishes. Not all of it naturally, but some of it. Because there is no separation from totality. Once there is no separation from totality, it doesn't matter so much anymore what the personal belongings and the personal situation is. There is no, not so much fear. The separation creates fear. The totality, the one creation feeling, brings about a feeling of being embedded in all that which exists. And the fear is no longer for a personal safety. The dukkha is seen as impersonal because it is seen as being universal. As long as we see dukkha as being personal, we really have a difficult life. It's only when dukkha appears to be universal that we know what it really is. So earth element in everything that can be touched. Fire element is the temperature. Very easy to feel whether we're warm or cold or medium. And anything we touch has temperature to it. This little bell feels quite cool. This piece of ground here where the sun was feels warm. Temperature is everywhere. Temperature is in the tree, temperature is in the air, temperature is in the water, temperature is in everything. You can go out and touch things. They all have temperature. We all have that together, the same thing. However, fire element is not only that. Fire element is also the destroyer. We could not digest our food if there wasn't the fire element. And the destruction, which is the decay we see, comes from the fire element. Everything out there in nature decays. The fire element in nature is very easy to see in Australia. We've got spontaneous combustion happening here in Australia. And it gets hot enough. Everything goes up in flames. Nobody needs to set a fire. It just goes up by itself. The fire element is there. It exists, so it goes up in flames. When the fire element gets too strong enough, we want to go and cool off. The fire element is only manageable for us from one from in, within a certain temperature gauge. Otherwise, we feel very, uh, it feels very difficult. The same for nature. Only up to a certain point, 
and then goes up in flames. It's the decaying element, it's the destroying element. Earth is the solidity element, and it also has the, um, the heaviness in it, whereas the fire has the destruction and the decay in it, and the temperature, of course. Now, the water element, we all know from our school days that we consist of almost 80% water. But we can't see it, can we? It doesn't look like water sitting here, does it? looks like bodies sitting there. And yet, there's almost 80% water in it. Why? Water is not only saliva, blood, urine, and sweat. Water is a binding element. If you have flour and you put water in it, you get dough. And that's the reason why there's so much water in us. If we didn't have all that water, all our cells would be walking around separately. We'd look a bit funny, but we'd have a much easier time understanding the non-personality of this person that we call I. Because little separate cells might not be so easily mistaken for a me, although we probably manage that one even. It binds together. If there wasn't all this water element, everything would be falling apart. Water element has the binding and also, of course, the wetness. Now, obviously, it's all over the place here. Again, we know that if there isn't enough water, there's death. And we can see that in the Australian landscape that dies without water. But we can see it in a tree, in the sap, we can see it in a flower, in the, um, in the stem, in the liquid that's in the stem. We can see it in the dew, in the rain. We can see water element everywhere. And water element, that's what binds, is not so easy to see. But that which is liquid, liquidity, is to be seen everywhere. No problem at all. Now, when we look at ourselves a little differently than just standing in front of the mirror and saying, I don't look so well today. I should do something about it. Or, oh, I'm looking fine. It's great. But look at ourselves in a little different way. Just seeing the elements, seeing the parts of the body, the way the Buddha describes, then we get a different grasp of reality. The reality in which we live, the Buddha said, was like a dream. You know, when you dream at night and you do remember it in the morning, and some people do remember in the morning, it seemed very real while it was going on. It was really a lot of stuff happening. It was all very frightful and uh, sometimes wonderful, mostly frightful usually. And it was a quite a real story that was going on. And then you wake up in the morning, you remember it, and you know there was all a dream. It didn't have any reality to it. It was just mind-made. That's what this is. That's why the Buddha is called the awakened one. He woke up. He was awakened. That's all it means. This is a dream. It's not real. And all the methods and all the guidelines and all the methods of meditation, everything we do, mindfulness, 
attention, concentration, inside message, they're all having one purpose, wake up from the dream, see it for what it is. Now in that dream, it's absolutely essential to recognize the fact that most of the time, with momentary exceptions, it isn't peaceful, it isn't beautiful, it isn't giving us what we're looking for. Well, if we know that, we'd like to stop dreaming. But most people don't even want to stop dreaming. All they want is to have nice dreams. Just nice ones. That was not the Buddha's aim. The Buddha's aim was to teach to stop dreaming, not to have nice dreams. And with, all, with, the, with the desire to have nice dreams, we're in a bind again. Because again, we've got a desire which produces nothing but dukkha. First and second noble truth. Dukkha has only one cause and that's craving. So with that, looking at ourselves in the way of the elements, we have a handle. Something to look at in a different way. And meditatively, this is very useful deliberately to do that and see those elements, you can feel them. You don't have to, um, seeing is not necessary, I mean inner seeing. You can feel them. You can feel the earth element, you can feel the fire element, you can feel the water element. There's any, no difficulty at all to feel them. And then relate that to all you know about the world around you. Relate it to everybody else. And if you ever want to get angry at somebody, then have a moment to think, am I getting angry at the water element, or the earth element, or the fire element, or am I getting angry at the air element? Which one am I getting angry at? Or am I getting angry at (coughs) the hair of the head, the hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin, or the liver, or the kidneys, or what am I getting angry at? Am I getting angry at that person's dukkha? What am I getting angry at? The whole thing is nonsense. That's the dream we live in. We're getting angry at bits and pieces because we think it's somebody real. Next time you get angry in a dream, remember that in the morning, that you got angry in the dream, and then look at it. Absurd, isn't it, to get angry in a dream? And yet we do it. The last one, the air element. Well, that's the easiest one, no? The breath. Couldn't be any easier. Air and wind. <coughs> it also has, is also movement. The wind element is also movement. And it's the winds in the body. And, but it's every movement. Because when we move, we displace air. We displace it. So there's plenty of movement out there, particularly from the wind. And the wind we can actually hear. We can't see it very well. But we can see the results of it. We can see the leaves moving from the wind. So the movement in everything is that element. All the elements have quality, but also they have, they have their own um, identity in the quality, but they also have a, um, an action in them. So the water has the binding action, the fire has the destroying action, the air and wind element, wind element 
has the moving action and the earth element has the heaviness, the falling, the law of gravity, earth element, falling action. And besides that, they have solidity as, a, as, their, as their quality, earth element, solidity, then temperature, then the uh, liquidity of water, and then the, um, the breath of the wind. If you watch your breath in order to gain insight, that too is helpful to know that the movement that you experience plus the wind which you experience there exactly is what's happening out there. Exactly the same. If there wasn't any air around this nature that we live in, would all die. Everything's got to breathe. So do we. What this is supposed to do is to take us away from our personality concept, which is nothing but a concept. It's that dream quality we're in. The personality idea take us away from our idea of separation, that I, take us away from our idea that we are something special, and put us in touch with our belonging with all that exists. Be part and parcel of everything around us. Now these are two ways of using insight methods directed towards the body. I'll tell you a third one. And I'm not telling you these to tell you stories. I'm telling you them these so that you can practice them. This is strictly a practice path. Naturally, I will Every time I explain, I will try to explain what the results can be, what is meant by them. But the main aspect is the practice part, to do it. One of my ways of expressing that is not so much thinking, more doing. And that applies to this also. Now the third aspect is, Decay, disease, and death. To see oneself decaying and dying. And if one doesn't like it, by all means do it. You can have a written guarantee, if you like, that you're going to decay and die. And you can have another written guarantee that if one isn't prepared for that, one is all one's life going to be afraid of it. And it's a totally unnecessary fear to be afraid of that which is inevitable. And not only is it inevitable, but it is the law of nature of arising and ceasing of the conditionality of all that exists, that which has conditions to be here, must disappear because the conditions change. Now, most people who do not practice, and not everyone, but most, do not want to know about their own death. They don't want to think about death as such because it appears to be frightful. There's no reason why it should appear frightful. Why should that which is natural 
be frightful. What it means is the hanging on to something that one can't keep, namely to this person, to this personality. This person, this personality is in constant flux and changes all the time, and we want to keep it. Why? Is it, is it such um, a boon to have it? Is it so wonderful? Is it so uh, enjoyable? Is it so without dukkha? Is it doing everything we want? Why, why want it? Why keep it in the first place? But what is its greatest problem? The greatest problem of this personality is the fact that it wants to stick around and already knows, the mind knows, without maybe even admitting it, that it can't. It's definitely going to die. So with that in mind, subconsciously, most people keep that on a very low burner so that it doesn't come up. How can there be peace and happiness? I'm going to get exactly that what I don't want. I'm going to disappear. I'm going to be annihilated. And I don't want it. So I know I'm going to get it. So how can anybody be happy? The only way to be happy and to find out how to live with this is to recognize the fact that this is the way nature is. That we are subject to the laws of nature. And while we're all trying to negate them, change them the way we would like them, we can't do it. Because we are it. We are the laws of nature. And what we have done so far on this planet, trying to change them so that they should be the way we want them, has resulted in one disaster after another. And that's what happens within us. We create a disaster area within because we don't like to live according to the laws of nature, although we are forced to, we like to have it differently. So we all have a disaster area because we don't like it. And we seen the same sort of thing that we see with dying forests and, and the polluted streams and all the rest of natural disasters. Atomic, uh, uh, atomic um, places that blow up and, and uh, pollute the whole environment and all the rest of it. So, instead of that, a meditator can get in touch with the laws of nature by knowing that death is imminent, not in the far-off future. What are 60 or 70 years? I've already been here almost 70 now. What is it? Nothing. It's like a drop in a bucket. Not even that, not even a drop. If you can think how many millions of years the human person has already been on this planet and how old the planet actually appears to be, what is one lifetime? It's nothing. Absolutely nothing. So, death is imminent. And besides, it can happen any moment. All we have to do is take one wrong step and we've had it. Turn the wheel wrong and you're, you're gone. Now with that in mind, we come a little nearer to the truth. We're here now, this moment. This is the only one that counts. 
But that brings up the urgency of practice now. That also shows the futility of sensual desire because it takes our mind away from the moment and hopes for the future. That also shows us the futility of hate, resistance and rejection because again it takes our mind away from this moment in which we could actually see the truth and puts our mind on a project, we project it somewhere, on a person, on a situation, on something. So we are projecting instead of living. We can only live this moment. So in order to get to that point of being able to live this moment and be here now, one of the best book titles I've ever heard of, um, we have to be able to see our own death and accept it as part of life, of our own law of nature. Now see it in such a way that we're actually in the meditation imagining the making a, a strong, if we can, visualization of the way we are dying picking the one thing that we're most afraid of. Many people are afraid of suffocating, but it usually arises spontaneously what one is afraid of. Letting it happen, going through the fear, and seeing oneself totally dead. And recognizing the fact that it's quite all right. If the fear arises, which it does in, in most cases, and one has to resist then, uh, uh, desist from doing this and had to do it another time again. If the fear doesn't arise and the mind says, it's okay, you know, so what's wrong with dying? You can be sure it hasn't been done properly. have to do it again. If the mind is too fearful and can't go through with it, we also have to stop and do it again another time. The mind has to slowly get used to it. Sometimes one has to do it twice, ten times, even twenty times. It doesn't matter. And then, as one sees this happening, one can actually see oneself being a corpse, all the relatives crying and lamenting, being put in a coffin, being put underground, the maggots starting to nibble on the body, it all falling apart. At first the body um, becomes discolored and uh, before the maggots come actually it becomes discolored, then the maggots come. Then it usually um, gets blown up, then it gets completely disintegrated and only the bones, and then the bones fall to dust. Takes a while. Pretty solid. And if one doesn't like that about oneself, one doesn't like life because it belongs together. One has to go through with that at least once or twice. And what happens when one has done it? The fear of losing one's life 
if, the, if it's done properly, goes. If the fear of losing one's life goes, the fear of losing anything goes. And freedom starts to arise. Because the, the shackles that everybody is carrying is the fear of losing something. Material belongings, the, um, the view one has of oneself, the view one others should have of one, of one, the opinion. One loses maybe one's uh, self-esteem or the esteem that others hold oneself in. What does it matter? One's going to lose a whole shebang in the end. So what does it really matter? Freedom arises the moment it doesn't matter anymore. That doesn't mean indifference. It means the lack of self-concern. And when the lack of self-concern has arisen and the freedom starts showing itself, it doesn't become complete, of course, but it starts showing itself, with that freedom, then the worries and the fears go away. And one just starts to be instead of to become and to be supported. One just is. The Buddha recommended nine different ways of seeing oneself dead. So you can see how important that is. I've just described them all very briefly. Absolutely essential who is alive, will die. And most people find it quite difficult. Why? Because we can't let go of that which we think is ours. So as a preparation, 32 parts of the body, the elements, the four elements, and then one's own death. And if you have done the 32 parts of the body and the elements with some real intention behind it and some real attention on it, then going through one's own death will be a fascinating experience which will not be frightful. If it's frightful, it has to be done just the same. And the fascination of it is that we can see ourselves objectively as we really are, as others see us. Nobody sees him or herself the way others see them. Others see another person quite um, objectively and, and fairly indifferently. So somebody else died. What a nuisance. I've got to go to the funeral. But myself, I can't even go to the funeral. <laughs> That's a totally different story. So now become the objective observer of this person that you're so, con that everybody is so concerned with. 
which is the center of your own universe and be the observer of that and see what it consists of and how it dies. These are inside methods and should be done according to the Buddha at least once a day. The first two are preliminary to the third one. And if you want to put more time in for the calm meditation, but you've got, you know, a whole day to work with, you can do one, one day, the next one, another day. These are the tools to get rid of this ego illusion. Use the tools to the best advantage, the best way you know how. A retreat like this is designed to give one also the necessary self-discipline without all the gongs going that we have in the usual retreats so that one actually does use the time in order to gain this um, profound insight which changes one's whole attitude and one's whole life. Okay, you have a few moments maybe to ask some questions if you like. Yes, Santa. If you think so, yes. It depends on what you think. The self is a, is a, is a thought process. So if you think that self, that's self. And if you don't think it's self, then it isn't. What, the dead one? Once you're, once you're dead, I would say that you don't feel any of it. There wouldn't be any difference between between the hair and, and, and between the skin. It's all dead. I don't think you could feel it anymore. I haven't been dead lately, but I don't think that you can. So I don't think there's any need to separate anything. As long as one thinks one is self, then one is self. And if one doesn't think one is self, one isn't. But that is more than thinking. You see, it's as long as you... I should uh, change that sentence. As long as you think and feel, you are me. So long you are. And when you think and feel, you're not me, then the me, the feeling has disappeared then there's nobody there. I think I've, it might be, it might work, I don't know exactly. I know, I knew, I know, a man who became a woman 
had operation as a, to become a woman. And I met this person. I knew him as a man, but I met him as a woman. And I still felt that this was the same man. For me, that wasn't a woman. I felt this to be the same man. And it just didn't change at all. It was my feeling that this was a man. The feeling is what comes. How you feel. If you don't feel that you're Santa, well, then you're enlightened. <laughs> it doesn't matter whether you've got hair or not. No, if you can use the four elements and see yourself completely as that and see yourself dying as that under any horrible circumstance without getting upset about it, that's very good. But make the circumstances pretty horrible and see whether it still works. Yes. It might not. Uh, no, it wouldn't. What, to bring it up first? If it comes into the mind when you're in the middle of the visualization. Oh no, that's not cheating, that's all right. Because this is what the teaching is for. To come into the mind spontaneously at the time of, of tragedy and disaster. That's not cheating, that's good. And then go through with it there. But uh, the, uh, you know... Yeah, not falling asleep on the couch like things, like what everybody would like, you know. <laughs> and they're not waking up anymore. Anything else? One should use that what one has the most fear of. And m maybe I haven't really verbalized that. The death that one is uh, visualizing is one which is caused by something that one is afraid of, like suffocating or drowning, these which are very unpleasant, or having a disease which is painful. And uh, certainly the, the mind needs to go to that which is most fearful to see that that too doesn't have any aspect of personality in it. So the, the fear is always arising out of the me concept. 
doesn't arise out of the me concept, no. But the, the fear of it arises out of the me concept. The Buddha also uh, had um, uh, at his death um, uh, severe uh, stomach pain. Went into the eighth jhana all the way down and died between fourth and fifth. It's quite a feat. You have severe tummy pain. So that's the the mind which has become totally disassociated from the unpleasant feeling. Fear can only arise because of the me concept. And it's very interesting that sometimes we think, um, well, I'm not afraid of that, that's quite all right. And uh, it might be something quite practical and we think it's quite all right. And then uh, um, a grasshopper jumps on the back of the head and one goes, whoo! Quite, quite a feeling of, oh, what, what's happening now? You know, that type of thing. So it's not easy to make the visualization actual. That's why one has to really do it with determination behind it. That's why I said if you think it's quite all right, you sh- haven't done it properly, do it again. Anything else? Yes. Yes, one has to feel the pain and the uh, the um, the, the uh, frightfulness of it until that has been penetrated and it's all right. Yes. Well, either you go through the fear and keep on doing, going through the, this frightful uh, business and getting to the death and finishing off then having gone through the fear, or if the fear is so bad, then you ret- retreat and try another time. Either way. Yes. When you've never seen death? No, of course not. Well, you can have an imagination. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yes. And use something that you don't that you particularly dislike as your cause for dying. Yes, well, you, you, you know, it's useless to do it when you're actually dying. At that time, it's a bit late. <laughs> Too late then. Oh, I actually have days that have come back, so death is very, very beautiful. I have to regard death momentarily, perhaps, in the mm. And uh, 
if if the the fear of getting there not mm. not death itself which of course mm. today exclusion was saying the fear of the pain or how mm. how you might arrive at that beautiful condition sort of thing well the only people who don't have any fear of death are either those that have actually been clinically dead and have come back and have seen it and they wouldn't be fearful of that anymore I believe um, and then of course enlightened people wouldn't have any fear because there's nobody to have any fear yeah. and um, a non-returner wouldn't have any fear non-returner wouldn't have enough ego left to have fear and then there are of course those who want death and that's exactly the other side of the same coin that doesn't help a thing. What this death thing is supposed to also help with is to see that not only that it's inevitable, that we're afraid of it, that we're trying to be something which we're not everlasting, and that there is, because of this impermanence, uh, is an illusion of this personality. It gets a little, we can get a little inkling of it. All of these are inside methods. And the more the mind has already trained itself, the easier it gets some of that insight. And the more it loses some of the greed and hate. 